Escape, the peacocks were screaming that morning. Their shrieks, loud and shrill, made me think that something was wrong. Maybe they knew better than all the grown-ups around me that an unprotected eight-year-old boy should not be left alone with grown men who were committed to a lifetime of celibacy. I ran on past the peacocks and strode the grounds with sure feet, walking among the fruit trees in the orchard just before the honeybee hives. I was trying to clear my head, it was filled with thoughts about my parents and the hell I'd been through the night before. I still had trouble believing they left me there, with no protection, no money, nothing from my former life. They had left me in a fantasy land that had quickly become a nightmare. I was startled out of my thoughts by an ear-splitting bang in the distance. Leaves rustled near me. Then I heard it again. Pop. Pop, something whizzed by my head. I jerked back and looked towards the house in disbelief. It was him, holding a .22 long rifle with its scope aimed directly at me. He pulled the trigger. And the shot echoed around the property. My heart pounded as I took off down the bush and tree-covered embankment to the fence that encircled the property. I knew he was sending me a warning, never tell, terrified, I clung to the fence, staggering until I found a hiding spot amongst the bushes. My pulse racing, my brain tried to come to terms with what was happening. I knew I needed a plan, but I had no clue what that should be. I had barely been there a day. I had no friends or family nearby. I had no choice but to go back to the house and try to tell somebody what had happened, I saw another path at the edge of the property, one that would take me out of his line of sight. I ran along the winding tree line surrounded by brush. When I was at the base of the hill, I crouched and looked around to be sure he couldn't see me, once I had my bearings, I took a deep breath and broke into a full sprint. I pushed off hard, kicking up dirt as I ran up the hill, making sure to stay on the other side of the manor. I crouched between the cars parked near the staff entrance of the house and ran between them until I finally reached the door. Slamming it open, I went into the main kitchen and ducked under and between staff who were balancing trays of silver or carrying vases overflowing with flowers. I looked up at them, searching for a familiar face. Finally, I saw a woman walking out of the kitchen, holding a clipboard in front of her. I spoke to her, I need help, please. I need to talk to M.S. St. Mary Bloom, she looked at my face, and her expression fell, Are you okay, Master Tommy, I need to talk to her right now, I said, exasperated. Wait here, Master Tommy. I'll find her, she had me sit at the breakfast table, near the mudroom. Staff, some wearing tuxedos, white uniforms or long black dresses, worked around me, bringing in flowers and clanking silverware. They snuck glances at me while I sat panting, trying to catch my breath. I think they thought I shouldn't be there. Maybe they were right. I worked up my resolve, deciding how much I would tell Miss St. Mary. As I sat there waiting, I reflected on my life and how I came to be there, I never thought I would remember the times when my pop used to beat me as the good old days, in the early 1960s, I was living in California with my family. My mom, Georgia, a first-generation Greek-American, my little sister, Susie, and Pop, Tomas Guillermo Orozco Garcia, Pop was a very proud man. He was a first-generation immigrant from Mexico, who strove for perfection in every arena. 
he had rigid ideas about what it meant to be successful. He was the man of the house, a provider, protector and often an enforcer, he liked to prove he was the strongest in the house, especially when he was drinking. If he was late coming home, mom, Susie and I would sit around the table, staring at the clock, preparing ourselves for the moment he would stumble into the house. After the food had grown cold and my mom had resigned herself to cleaning the table. That's when it would happen. The door would fly open and Pop would come in swinging, I'm going to teach you what it is to be a man, he would shout as he lunged at me. First, landing blows on my head, then my body. I'd try not to cry, but when I tensed up he knew I was feeling it. Then he would up the ante, be a man, he'd shout and that's when the kicks came. His knees and feet always fell right where he wanted them to since he'd spent years as a semi-pro soccer player. With the muscles in his legs flexed. He would rear back and kick my head from behind. My mother and Susie would stay back, crying for him to stop, but they were never successful. He would beat me until he ran out of steam. They were safe, they didn't need to learn to be a man, in the morning all was forgotten. Pop wouldn't acknowledge what had happened the night before. He would sit at breakfast and smile, ignoring the bruises on my body from him, my mom never forgot, mom was a photographer. She had studied with Ansel Adams. Though she learned early on that landscapes weren't for her, she saw people. She used her talents to take portraits, mostly of children and particularly of me, by day, mom, Susie and I lived our own separate and exciting life away from pop mom would take us to the most beautiful locations all over Southern California. Places like Knott's Berry Farm, Pacific Ocean Park, Santa Monica Beach and Disneyland. We would go on rides, look at flowers or swim until the sun was in the right spot in the sky for mom to capture our images at their best. She would comb through those photos, selecting her favorites for her portfolio. One day she went to the Self-Realization Fellowship Temple of Paramahansa Yogananda on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood and decided the gardens were perfect. She wanted to take pictures of me in front of the beautiful golden domes, built for reflection and meditation. They were exotic looking, even for Hollywood, like a scaled-down version of the Taj Mahal. She was positioning me when a woman with short blonde hair, wearing a long skirt that reached down to her ankles, approached. The length of the skirt didn't make sense in 1960s California. It was too modest and too hot for the weather. But even more memorable than her skirt were the woman's eyes. They looked like broken blue sea glass. They were almost too bright to look at, certainly, I could not maintain eye contact with her. Some people might find those eyes beautiful, but I found them unsettling, otherworldly, and evil, she introduced herself as Louise Shell and began a conversation with my mom. Completely ignoring me as they looked through mom's portfolio. Mom's book included posed pictures of me sipping on a soda in a malt shop with a friend, a picture of me opening a toy court gun and a photo of me with a white dinner jacket and tie which had my name on it. Louise seemed pleased as she flipped through the photos. She invited us to join her for lunch. I poked at a mushy pile of uninteresting vegetables as the two of them put their heads together, laughing as they easily fell back into the conversation. Louise seemed reluctant to part from mom and invited us to join her at a church on Jefferson Street for a service. She promised it was not like any church we'd ever been to before.
At home, Mom told Pop about meeting Louise. When she said we were going to meet this woman again, he barely registered the request and mumbled that we could go. I did not know, nor could I, that trouble was brewing on the East Coast, and that chance meeting with Louise Shell was about to put me at the center of it.